Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The not-quite-legally-mandated two segments today, we'll hear from Saurabh Amari, author of a new book on the tyranny of capital, and then from Aaron Reed on Transpolitics today. Saurabh Amari is one of the founders of Compact Magazine. Compact, which calls itself a radical American journal, is hard to classify. It has one foot on the right, specifically a socially conservative Catholic sort, but is opposed to the laissez-faire economics that dominates the right today. It's often anti-imperialist and social democratic in its politics. I don't cherish unpredictability or unclassifiability as virtues in themselves, but even when I disagree with it, which is often, I find it smart, well-written, and worth reading. Saurabh was on this show in January to discuss his and Compact's politics in general. Here he is to talk about his new book, Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It, published by Forum, the conservative imprint of Random House. Saurabh Amari was born in Tehran and spent his early years there. When he was six, his parents divorced, and soon after his mother moved them to Utah, joining an uncle who was already there. As a teen, he cycled through Nietzsche and Trotsky, even spending some time in Socialist Alternative, before taking up residence in the right, writing editorials for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, two Rupert Murdoch properties with similar politics but rather different audiences. His right-wing politics got quirkier over time, and while he's not gone back to his socialist affiliations, the politics of the book lean much more left than right. Much of Tyranny, Inc. is a critique of the tyranny imposed by capital in the workplace and in life in general, and it's a very useful catalog of those impositions. So, Rob Amari. Traditional American notions of liberty are really not adequate to deal with a, a world dominated by private corporations. Is that one of your major points? Yes. Certainly the account of liberty, especially that has come to dominate the conservative movement and the right since the Reagan era or since the mid-1970s with Goldwater, has come to frame all coercion as only what government does at the risk of obscuring the fact that private actors can be tyrannical and that, in fact, our lives as workers and consumers are suffused with coercion. It's just that it doesn't come directly from a centralized government. But I argue in Tyranny, Inc. that that makes this kind of coercion all the more insidious because, first of all, our legal regime and political regime increasingly teach us that precisely because what happens to you at the workplace, I give the example of a worker who's forced to sign an agreement saying that he would, if he shows up to work the next day, he has to submit all of his complaints, including wage uh, underpayment under the Fair Labor Standards Act, to an arbitral forum, private arbitration, in which his employer, the giant accounting firm, uh, Ernst & Young, sets the rules. And he needs to spend $200,000 in order to recover $2,000 in unpaid wages. So unless he's allowed to act as a class action, as indeed those, those New Deal legislations like Fair Labor Standards Act were supposed to encourage collective action, he has to go at it singly and in a way that's economically irrational. Uh, this is an actual case, and our Supreme Court sided with Ernst & Young in this um, landmark case. But the point is that precisely because we say, oh, what happens in that moment when Ernst & Young sent an email to all employees saying, henceforth, if you show up to work, you agree to submit yourself to arbitration. We treat that as a private realm and therefore not subject to democratic give and take, not subject to legal justiciability, all the things we normally associate with a decent political order. You've spent a lot of time in and around the conservative movement. How do people who populate that think about these issues or do they think about them at all? Certainly in the pre-Trump era, everyone was more or less sounding like Paul Ryan. It's certainly at least the conservative elites for the most part sounded like Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney, which is, well, we have a free market economy. Everyone's free to find a better deal elsewhere. We should talk about equality of opportunity. Don't talk too much about inequality and including inequalities in power. The Trump phenomenon revealed a great deal of uh, discontent among 
parts of the GOP base, including working class people who gravitated toward Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, people who may not have been straightforwardly Republican elites or Republican voters in the past. And then especially more recently with, for example, the rise of big tech power and censorship, a lot of conservatives have been alerted to this possibility of private coercion. The problem is that it doesn't translate into any kind of actual political program that would realistically tame this kind of coercion. Instead, it's typically channeled into sort of culturalist grooves. Oh, you know, get the woke hedge fund off my back. But like what hedge funds normally do to the economy is not addressed or lots of loud complaining about big tech power. But it's progressive congressional staffers like Lena Khan, who's now President Biden's competitions are, who actually is the one doing serious probes and offering proposals for how to rein in this power imbalance between Silicon Valley and everyone else online. So I would say there is greater awareness, but the awareness is often shallow and superficial. And um, so far, there's, except for a few exceptions, it has not amounted to a serious politics. You cite Lincoln's uh, speech by Lincoln. And his thinking was that someone is a wage laborer only as a temporary situation or because of some moral failing or a lack of ambition, that uh, the proper state of the ordinary worker is as someone who's self-employed, self-sufficient. The current economy does not support that vision of things and hasn't really for well over 100 years. But that attitude does pervade a lot of American political common sense, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I identify that speech, which is Lincoln's speech to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, as the emblematic statement of American political economy in the 19th century, which set the mold for much else that followed. And the speech is mostly remembered as Lincoln's critique of this monstrous mudsill theory that the South's more zealous ideologues had developed, figures like George Fitzhugh and James Hammond, which basically held that there's always going to be a class of an underclass that does the toil in society that no one else wants to do. And it's just better for those people to be straight up slaves. And George Fitzhugh went so far as to say, you know, it needn't be limited to black slavery. We, we could you know, enslave white people, too. And of course, that terrified northern workers and propelled them to Lincoln's side in the in the election. But that's what the speech is remembered for. What's less remembered is this unfortunate fact that Lincoln, for all of his visionary leadership in the Civil War crisis and crisis over slavery, in terms of political economy, his own mindset was still shaped in this late 18th century Arcadia of independent yeoman farmers and uh, mechanics and artisans and so forth. This brief period when capitalism sort of resembled the picture that the 18th century free market thinkers like Adam Smith had painted. You're a farmer, you have, you know, mostly you produce for yourself, but then occasionally you go to the market and you trade your surplus XYZ product, honey, whatever it may be, you traded with some other person for beer and meat or whatever. You dealt with people at an arm's length and then you could, and everyone could walk away. And really the price uh, was in some ways an accurate index of supply and demand. And there was real competition. Unfortunately, by the time Lincoln delivered the, the address to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, that Arcadia had been swept away by the Industrial Revolution. And in fact, as we know, and plenty, there's plenty of this in the sort of Marxist and progressive economic history and literature, but there's also other traditions that note this as well, that most workers were going to be employees going up against a relatively smaller number of employers who have, as a result of that imbalance in numbers, have a great deal of power over them. But the bottom line is that Lincoln didn't see that. He, As you say, he, he thought of the worker as a kind of a composite figure of employer and employee. He started out as a penniless beginner in the world, as Lincoln famously said, but then rises to be a capitalist himself. Then he can buy his own tools and land and hire some other penniless beginner who in turn rises to be a capitalist. This is a very alluring idea and, and one that's been indelible in the American mind when it comes to thinking about labor, which is that every worker is an incipient capitalist just waiting to find his opportunity. It wasn't even realistic in the mid-19th century, but still you hear that in the Republican Party's rhetoric when Mitt Romney types or Paul Ryan types extol the job creator and kind of ignore the actually the job holder, which is the vast majority of Americans, they're hearkening to that Lincolnian idea of that there is no class conflict at all, that every, every worker is basically also a capitalist. 
I'm reminded of Phil Graham saying, well, the job creator, the capitalists are the ones who are pulling the wagon, um, whereas everyone else is a passenger, as if uh, the, the worker is contributing nothing to the enterprise. The Lochner decision, that uh, judicial decision really dominated a lot of uh, legal practice until the New Deal, which partly reversed it, but now we're back in Lochner land. So could you tell us uh, what Lochner is all about? Yeah. So the Lochner decision was a 1905 Supreme Court decision that invalidated a New York state law limiting the work weeks of bankers to 60 hours. The court said this is a violation of liberty of contract, which is a fundamental right embedded in the Constitution, as sacred as, say, free speech, and so on. It wasn't just this one law. Lochner became a shorthand for a whole series of Supreme Court decisions in which the court invalidated state and local protections, even federal protections for workers on the grounds that it violated liberty of contract. It was famously, of course, that system and that worldview on the Supreme Court was um, collapsed under the pressure of FDR, it's a little bit more complicated than the switch in time that saved the nine. But there is something to that story that amid the miseries of the Depression, FDR just brought enormous pressure on the court such that the court suddenly discovered that maybe liberty of contract isn't such a sacred constitutional principle. The problem is that in the decades since then, Lochnerism or neo-Lochnerism has made a, an insidious and sort of subtle comeback such that, in fact, most employees are in these kind of Lochner type situations, because first of all, private economy labor unionism has been slashed as a result of you know employers waging very effective class war since the passage of the Wagner Act. The result is that a lot of a lot of employees are going up against employers who have the power of at will employment. And liberty of contract theory says workers and employers have this symmetrical right to each walk away from the other. And therefore, their relationships, they're optimal and shouldn't be interfered with for the most part by government. In reality, you know, if you take a job, you maybe have moved across the country, you've leased a new apartment or bought a new house, whatever, got a new car, etc. Your spouse has moved along with you and you show up to work and you're handed a fat pile of papers. And among those, for example, as I report in Tyranny Inc., is a very typical clause that says you agree to have every single thing that you say, your voice, etc., your persona, your singing voice even, recorded by your employer and sold for commercial purposes to third parties. No one who's confronted with that kind of a contract or agreement says, oh, you know, I, I actually, I disagree with this clause. Can we strike it? Everyone signs because the power imbalance and the realities of the labor market are such that you need this. You just moved across the country or your city and you quit your previous job. You can't just, there's no power to renegotiate. But liberty of contract says at that point, workers and employers can walk away from each other and therefore they have this symmetrical power, which is just this obscene fiction that's really made a comeback in American labor law in recent years. I'm speaking with Saurabh Amari, author of Tyranny, Inc., just out from Forum Books. The arbitration thing you mentioned earlier, the original law was nowhere near as expansive as it's come to be read. And uh, Neil Gorsuch, who I believe you share a publisher with, was partly responsible for this decision that he wrote that really expanded the scope of arbitration. Can you tell that history? Yeah. So the Federal Arbitration Act uh, was enacted in 1925 by Congress unanimously. It was a law to force federal courts to uphold arbitral agreements between, and this is the crucial part, between merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. Arbitration is an ancient practice. Basically, instead of going to court with all of its tension and expense, etc., and long duration, it, two parties agree beforehand that if any dispute arises between them, they will submit their dispute to a neutral mediator who provides quick resolution. But that only works, again, with merchants of equal bargaining power. And this issue was so important. Future President Hoover, then Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover, tried to reassure Congress that this law wouldn't be used to force weaker parties into arbitration. The drafters of the law, who were a pair of New York businessmen, insisted in congressional te testimony over and over that this would not apply to workers. But over the past, uh, you know, basically since the neoliberal revolution, since the 1980s, mainly conservative Supreme Court justices have expanded the scope of the Federal Arbitration Act to apply it to workplace situations, such that most recently in this case that I mentioned, Morris versus Ernst and Young, Justice Neil Gorsuch ruled that, yep, you know, even though 
first of all, the arbitration clause was ha- offered after several several months uh, after Morris joined his job and took the job, and was basically had no choice but to agree to it because you show up to work the next day, you want to earn a paycheck, and even though this would basically limit his right to be able to actually vindicate the rights that he is entitled to under both the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal law that uh, guarantees you um, a minimum wage and overtime protections, and the California Labor Code. Nevertheless, the parties had freely agreed, you know, in Lochner's style to arbitrate their disputes, and arbitration clause overrides all other principles. Mm -hmm. Of course, the the dissent by the late Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg eviscerates this, and she precisely points to the legislative history of the Federal Arbitration Act that it was never meant to apply to these situations of vast power disparity. But we have a neo-Lochnerist regime, and that decision is a especially acute symptom of that regime. So much for originalism, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I point that out, that uh, you know the, the whole idea of originalism to which uh, these uh, conservative justices are so wedded that uh, you're supposed to honor the intent of you know, statutory or constitutional framers goes out the window <laughs> when uh, employers' uh, prerogatives are at stake, apparently. Uh, let's talk some about the politics of this. You're advocating what looks like a classic social democratic agenda, unions and regulation, a more generous welfare state all the things that Hayekian neoliberalism has prescribed over the years. And it also has a lot in common with Catholic social doctrine. But to achieve that, the New Deal moment in the U.S., you know, the, from the 1930s to the 1960s, where we had something more of a, um, a policy environment that uh, is congenial to your view, it required plant sit-ins, uh, Communist Party, the USSR, a threat to the capitalist class of total expropriation. We have nothing like that now. What political route do you see to this uh, better world? Several. I mean, I see several hopeful symptoms. Uh, One is the fact that there is a wave of militancy sweeping the American labor market across sectors, across geography. It's not nearly what it was, let's say, in the 1930s um, and just in general in the lead up to the to the New Deal. Uh, But it's gaining momentum and just the sheer fact that uh, the pandemic revealed how dependent we are on on workers and you know and, and, and how industrially incapacitated we've become as a result of neoliberalism all this suggests that this kind of worker ferment can continue and you know you have an administration the Biden administration that is post neoliberal i would argue in important ways not least in rhetoric obviously with Jake's national security advisor Jake Sullivan's uh famous address on moving beyond the washington consensus which is really a byword for neoliberalism and in, in, in action in important ways, right? We have an administration that's uh, taking seriously the idea of industrial policy, reshoring manufacturing, closer supply chains. What will all that mean? It mean, just means that I see this as a lot of developments that tend toward a greater power for labor. Uh, you know, there, there are barriers to it. We can't be too optimistic. One, one, for example, is a lot of it is happening in the context of American bellicosity abroad. That is, the reason we're doing this is because... We foresee a confrontation in the future with China. To be honest, and some some of the achievements of the New Deal also happened in a similar context, right? Uh, the presence of the USSR, both as a military and its geostrategic threat, but also as this kind of alternative model that would prove threatening. So that's uh, one thing. But you know, nevertheless, you know, it's possible to continue down the path of you know industrial policy and manufacturing closer to home, et cetera, without jumping into a war with China. And I think that's the task of people like us who favor greater worker power at home is to embrace this kind of new, quote unquote, industrial patriotism without, you know, letting it get out of hand, you know, with kind of apocalyptic conflict. But anyway, I think there are these signs and I'm hopeful, you know, I, I have very little hope from the right, as you know, Doug, I think the book, people read it in Tyranny Inc. I wrote it when it seemed like in 2020, it was election night and Trump had widened his gains among the working class, not just the white working class or important segments of it, but into the people among working class people of color, et cetera. So the book was conceived in that optimistic moment. But over the past few years, I've just become more and more disillusioned. I see most of the right talking about Wall Street power, for example, and how Wall Street corrodes the real economy. But like most of the real reforms to try to rein that in right now are on the left still. But but there are little green shoots. Like I think he doesn't quite speak the way that most people on the labor left would want him to, and he doesn't go as 
far as people on the labor left would want him to. But figures like Marco Rubio or J.D. Vance or Senator Hawley are trying to move the GOP beyond some of its orthodoxies. And if the GOP wants to retain the workers that not currently are rallying to the party, it has to deliver for them because working class people are smart and they'll see through these efforts to channel every economic grievance into like anti-wokeism. So combine those elements, you know, you could potentially have a, a, a new bipartisan consensus to replace the, uh, the neoliberal consensus, which absolutely was a left-right consensus, right? It was, as, as Thatcher famously said, her greatest achievement was Tony Blair. Um, and of course, Bill Clinton was as staunch a neoliberal in some ways as Ronald Reagan. So if we want something better, I believe there has to be this kind of consensus in the middle of class compromise. I don't see how you can achieve your um, agenda without the um, help of the actually existing left, yet you're really opposed to the social agenda of much of the left. Somebody like me, queer trans rights are very important things. You call yourself ferociously conservative on social issues. Can we just overlook those differences or um, how, how do we handle it? Yeah, well, there, there are several models. One is to, to have a model that says we try to see eye to eye on labor policy, industrial policy, et cetera, and fight another day on these cultural issues. But I think that's actually a kind of blinkered uh, way to, to think about it. I think that there is a deeper consensus that's possible because so many of our cultural crises have material roots, right? Conservatives uh, lament the symptoms correctly, declining family formation, growing sense of alienation, social atomization, deaths of despair. The conservatives are willing to talk about this, but they don't always look at the causes in, in the market system. In fact, they very, very rarely look at the causes in the market system. Whereas the left sometimes has the opposite, where it identifies the causes in the market system, but then ratifies the results saying, well, people want to be totally individualistic in ways that I think are contrary to genuine human flourishing. You see the symptoms in various ways and the urban misery and addiction and so on and so forth. And I think upholding all of that on the basis of individual autonomy isn't a good look for the left. So it is possible that just pursuing some material reforms will turn down the temperature of the ideological and cultural conflicts. You know, so for example, if you have a high wage economy in which people don't feel the need that they have to be constantly fighting for credential jobs, and if they don't uh, get that kind of credential job, then they'll be plunged into a, into absolute abyss of material insecurity. Well, in those contexts, people, for example, will play up their identitarian differences. I am, I am this, I am that, and you build up kind of this kind of pressure. Whereas if we have a an economy in which things are secure, then people don't, these cultural differences will, will not loom so large. The only uh, the last thing, I, don't, I know I'm, this was a long digressive answer, but one last point to make about this is that and I think people on the left have to recognize that lots of people who are natural constituencies of the left aren't where the left, where the official left is on, on social issues. They may not be where I am, but they think, for example, that lots of Americans do, including working class Americans, that there should be some like trimester limit to abortion. And so the official labor movement has gone along with the Democratic Party and basically become you know, impossible to distinguish between the Democratic Party and the labor movement, including on cultural issues, because the Republicans have been so lousy. But if you have a Republican Party that gives at least some recognition that its coalition now includes working people, including union households, then you have a labor movement that can be a little bit more independent of the official left. And there needn't be this kind of total identification of labor with cultural leftism. We can fight those other issues on, on various other terms, but you have the possibility there for a, a, a social consensus. But that's, again, dependent on, as I said, the, the, these elements of the right recognizing that if they want to maintain the new electorate that they've won, they need to think differently on, on economics. And that's a very challenging proposition. Yes, it is. Oh, okay. Finally, um, for someone like me, uh, immersed in left-wing thinking, a lot of your arguments, uh, criticisms of the tyranny of private capital, uh, the workplaces of dictatorship, um, these are all very familiar. So who, who is your audience? Who are you trying to reach with this book? Yeah, I mean, certainly I, I want to persuade persuadable uh, conservatives. Um, and there are, they exist on the right, especially among the younger generation of young people who don't buy this sort of boomer Reaganite arguments because they're going up in a very different economy and are, they feel the same pressures as 
young people who are, for example, drawn to to the Democratic Socialists of America for their own sort of sense of economic insecurity and and angst. So that's one. And I think there is a liberal middle uh, to be reached that people who opposing coercion is just in an admirable way, part of the American story. It's so deeply woven into the, the liberal tradition. And so that liberal center, uh, I try to persuade, including using our, our, the arguments and the vernacular of the left, to be honest. I mean, in readers who pick up the book and if they ignore, you know, the author's name that appears on the cover, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, Wendy Brown, Michel Foucault, David Harvey, et cetera, are the sort of intellectual touchstones, as is Pope Leo the Thirteenth, right? To try to persuade them to think about coercion as not just this narrow idea that coercion is what the police officer does to me necessarily, although that can be coercive too, or the tax man, but also what my social media platform does to me or what my employer does to me or what the monopolistic producer seller that I have to deal with as a consumer, that can be coercive as well. I think unlocking that possibility opens up potentially political, larger political possibilities in the United States. Oh, Sorab Amari, co-editor and co-founder of Compact Magazine, compactmag.com, and author of Tyranny, Inc., just out from Forum Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some early Fleetwood Mac before they became a mega-hit machine, Child of Mine from 1972. This is in total accordance with the classic indie snob line, I like the early stuff best. Next, the politics around transness in the U.S. Erin Reed describes herself as a trans-queer news and history content creator, LGBTQ+, and repro legislation tracker, and activist trying to change the world to be a better place. Her main outlet is a substack, Erin in the Morning, a near-daily view of that beat. As she notes in the interview, there are some 540 anti-trans bills proposed in states across the country over the last year, a stunning roster of hate. Here's Erin Reed with more. How did you get into this line of work? I, about four years ago, started tracking healthcare resources for the transgender community. Uh, I created a map of informed consent hormone therapy clinics. These are places where trans people can obtain their medical care. And after doing that, I became aware of laws that were targeting those clinics. And so people started sending me information about them. I learned how to read the laws themselves, and I became kind of a, unwittingly, sort of a a central focal point for a lot of people giving me information to report. And I just, it, it it all kind of snowballed from there. Uh, that map, of course, uh, is um, a very important feature of your work. And I noticed uh, just you, you do a comparison of December 22 versus June 23, and it looks like there's a hardening of the differences, things getting more, even more cleaved. I think that that is a very good point to make because so much of the analysis of this anti-trans legislative push, anti-LGBTQ legislative push has focused on the badness of the laws. And that's important. Like these laws are horrific in many of these states, but it's also important to recognize that like, it's not a uniform movement. We, we have seen states actually pass protective laws. At least 14 states have passed laws that protect people on the basis of gender identity that uh, offer sanctuary from states that criminalize their care. And so, yeah, it is a hard thing. We, we see half of the country moving in the positive direction, and then half of the country banning care and banning people from bathrooms. 
I did some uh, calculations on uh, your classifications, so the worst anti-trans states and the, the semi-bad ones and the, the, the good ones. And the worst states have a poverty rate almost two points higher than the rest, life expectancy almost two years shorter. There's a high overlap with the Confederate states, it seems. And states that are both anti-trans and Confederates have even worse numbers along those lines. And then the, the opposite of the ones you list as the safest have a considerably lower poverty rate and a longer life expectancy. Um, so it's an interesting contrast in the social indicators of these two sets of states. It is. And I would also like to add that this is both a positive and a negative in, in a lot of ways, because you know, for the people in those states, you know, these states do protect the rights of people. They have public health programs. They uh, generally tend to have high, higher end school systems, et cetera. But the other thing is that a lot of the protective states are not super affordable to live in. And so you have this situation where many of the states that are criminalizing care have people that cannot move from those states because they don't have the resources, the income, the ability to get up and leave. I myself have spoken to people that have left places like Tennessee and Alabama who are now living out of vans in Massachusetts, for instance. This is an issue. And and I want to actually stress that passing these laws in many of these states that protect transgender people who are fleeing persecution in a lot of the criminalizing states is a necessary and important first step. But we also need to ensure that we are ready to take care of the people that are leaving their home state whenever they arrive into our borders. Do we have any sense of how much of that migration is going on? I've seen reports of people leaving Florida. How representative is that? So I've done a lot of research on this topic myself. Um, I will start by saying that just this morning, the AP released a story about how there are massive wait lists in many of these states that have passed provisions that protect care and that safeguard people whenever they're traveling over state borders. We are already seeing hospital wait lists balloon for gender affirming care in protective states. Now, whenever I researched this issue myself, um, there was recently actually a very interesting study, a survey done by Data for Progress that shows that 8% of all transgender people have already moved from their home state with an additional 40% of transgender people considering it. Now, 8% may not seem like a large number, but in raw numbers, there are about 1.5 million trans people to 3 million trans people in the United States, according to various estimates. And so that amounts to 130 to 260,000 transgender people who have already fled from their home states. When did this really reactionary anti-trans ball get rolling? I mean, what are the politics, uh, the history of the politics of this? Yeah, this is an interesting question that I get asked a lot. And before I talk about like the specifics of this particular moment in time, I do want to stress that the United States has a long history of getting into the persecution of the LGBTQ community every couple decades. And there's always a big thing that happens, be it from back during World War II to the drag bans of the 1950s and 60s, which gave us Stonewall, to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, to the ex-gay movement and the constitutional marriage amendments in the 2000s. And now, 20 years later, it seems like every 20 years or so, we get another big anti-LGBTQ push where they're calling LGBTQ people groomers and banning transgender care. So I want to I want to contextualize it before I speak about the specifics of this particular moment in time, because this is part of a, a thread that has run through U.S. history for a while now. In this particular instance, you know, we saw in 2015 the gay marriage ban go down with the Obergefell decision. And in 2016, immediately afterwards, the, they needed a new target within the LGBTQ community. Transgender people were ripe for the picking. And so they ended up passing a law in North Carolina, 2016, it's the bathroom ban. This is what I usually look to as the very first, the seed of, of where we are today. So this bathroom ban got passed in North Carolina. It barred transgender people from bathrooms and it resulted in an enormous backlash in the state. The NBA All-Star Game pulled out, PayPal pulled out, Deutsche Bank pulled out. It set back the anti-trans movement by four years because no state wanted to pass these laws. Then it took them a while, but they, they sort of licked their wounds and, and moved on to 2020, which is whenever we got the modern wave. 
And this is where we started getting the sports bans, the uh, gender affirming care bans, the birth certificate bans. And I, I'll close off by saying that there are really good articles about this in the New York Times and CNN, where they interview people like Terry Schilling at the American Principles Project, one of the organizations behind these anti-trans laws. They speak very frankly about how they had to focus on sports because that was an issue where they could get their foot in the door. And they also speak about how they focused on making these laws hit several states at the same time so that they avoid the fate of the North Carolina bathroom ban, which had the enormous backlash. Well, it does seem like a lot of this stuff is coordinated, right? I mean, a lot of the right-wing state-level politics is coordinated by things like ALEC. Is this coordinated in similar ways by some sort of you know, right-wing anti-trans central? Absolutely. Uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, the American Principles Project are just three of some of the many names that have come up in these conversations. There have been interviews, there have been email leaks. Uh, I know, for instance, there was a massive email leak around the Alliance Defending Freedom and the push for the very first anti-trans bans in South Dakota, as well as in Georgia, I believe. And this was reported on by Vice News. They would close off their emails with under his wings. It was very religious motivated. So even though, you know, in courts and in legislatures, they try to speak about this as if it is scientifically motivated, but from the actual policy development, you can tell that it's very much religiously motivated. I remember one line in one of the emails, for instance, mentioned about how these kids are not these parents' kids, they belong to God. There very much is a heavy religious motivation behind these laws done by groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which focuses on the ushering in of a new age of Christian, of Christian law in America. Now, I will also say that from my perspective, as somebody who reads these laws, you can also tell that they are coordinated because what you what you see is several laws drop in several states at the same time, and they have identical language to them. And I watched as 540 laws get dropped all across the United States throughout throughout this last year. And you can see how after certain court challenges happened, they would add a new provision to the law specifically designed to make it harder to challenge in court. And you can see how just these laws evolve and change as the central organizations that are writing these laws are responding to court developments and court losses. How would you characterize the state of public opinion now? It seems to me that the broad public isn't necessarily on board with the, the full agenda of the haters. And many people seem to have a live and let live attitude, which is not to minimize the threat of the haters. But uh, yeah, what would you say about the general drift of public opinion at this point? The public opinion polls are interesting on this because people, whenever you ask the question, um, you know, there are various ways to frame the question. Uh, you know, are you in favor of gender affirming care for transgender youth? Are you in favor of illegal or of criminalizing gender affirming care? Uh, do you support trans people in sports? Do you support uh, laws protecting from discrimination? There, there are so many different ways that polls ask this question. And I'll be frank, the polls are all over the place, depending on the wording. What is constant and what is solid is that whenever you ask people what the most important issues are, or do you think your, your legislators should spend time legislating on this stuff, transgender issues always end up at the bottom. Anytime it's asked, they're always in last place with maybe 1% of people identifying it as a policy priority. On top of that, people do generally and broadly support non-discrimination protections for transgender people, and they tend to be opposed to criminalizing gender-affirming care for transgender youth and adults. But the, the biggest thing that I want to highlight is that there's a lot of uncertainty in the polling because people don't really know much about transgender care. A lot of people, they they haven't had to live the life of a parent with a trans kid or as a transgender person themselves. And so I think mo most people understand their own limitations on this, their own limitations of understanding on this. And they understand, like you had mentioned before, that it's important to let these decisions be undertaken by the doctors, the patients, and, and in the cases of kids, the family. And I think that that's where a lot of people end up whenever they finally look at everything and think through it, even if they don't understand the care themselves. Now, the anti-trans lobby is really targeting kids. And it seems that even some fairly liberal people are vulnerable to this appeal. So how do you respond to these things? You know, they're, they're too young. They don't know what they're doing. We just want to protect damage before it's too late. That sort of argument. How, how do you respond to that? The biggest response that I usually say around this is, and, and to kind of borrow from what I just spoke about before is that the care that is being undertaken right now is done methodically. It's done in conjugation with leading health professionals, with therapists. I've spoken to the families of transgender kids, and these people often have binders full of doctor visits, therapy assessments, 
they're doing their due diligence and they keep these binders on purpose because if they're ever targeted by the state for child abuse or something like that, they know that they've got a binder that they can show that they have done all of their medical appointments. They've done all of their therapy appointments. And these decisions are done with generally large teams. You have doctors, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, all trained in this care that have been trained in this care for a long time in conjugation with the leading medical experts and and opinions. We have right now, for instance, 29 major medical organizations supporting this care. And and I think that what, what I want to close off by saying is that given that these care teams are really focused on these kids and they're really focused on making sure that they're doing best for them, these decisions ultimately belong with the families and the doctors. And, and I don't think that it is our place to say that you cannot pursue the best care for your own kid. And I think I think that's where I think um, we fall back on. And, and, you know, usually whenever we think about other instances where care has often been targeted, you know, things like during Obamacare, there was a big blow up, for instance, around the, the idea that Obamacare would somehow get between patients and their doctors. And ultimately, we, we understand that it's important to maintain that doctor-patient relationship as best as possible because they are the experts on this. And trusting the, the leading experts on this, I think, is extremely important. <laughs> it's the insurance companies to get between people. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Aaron Reed, whose Aaron in the Morning Substack covers the world of trans and queer politics. Now, there's this line that we just don't know enough about uh, the effects on youth, um, and we need to be careful. What do you say to that? Yeah, so we have decades of medical evidence around care. The very first trans kid, you know, was from back in the 1890s. We have we have evidence of the very first trans kids back then that are in recorded history in the United States. Of course, trans people go back much further, and in current in the current era, we see. For instance, research showing that puberty blockers lower the suicide rate for transgender youth by up to 73%. These are real lives saved. It lowers the depression and anxiety rate by 60 to 70%. And these are things that that are enormously helpful for the transgender youth who need them. I want to say and to make clear that I don't disagree with being careful around care. I think that taking care is really important and, and that being careful is extremely important. And I, I want to say that that is what matches with my experience with these families. I have never met more caring families than the parents of these trans kids. And they're doing the best that they can with the medical evidence that we have. And I think that allowing this care to be individualized and personalized for every patient rather than a blunt hammer approach to this, where care is just outright banned, is in the best interest of the kid, and is in the best interest of their medical care. Now, the right is keeping Chloe Cole very busy, but how common is detransitioning? How much regret do grownups have over these procedures? Yeah, so there's actually been a lot of research on this as well. There was recently a study that came out just yesterday that showed that for gender-affirming top surgery, so this is chest masculinization surgery, the regret rate was almost nothing. It was, I think, like the median score, satisfaction score is five out of five. And then whenever you looked at the, uh, the histogram or the mean, you could see that the, the very vast majority of people um, had zero uh, complaints or zero um, regret about receiving care with a few people having very minor uh, complaints about care. And so you'll see that people generally tend to be very very appreciative of the care that they receive, that it tends to help them a lot. Uh, I know that gender-affirming care has seen regret rates of 1% to 3% is usually the number cited. And there have been studies on detransition that shows that detransition rate tends to be between 1% to 5%. And, and here's the important point, and this is a really big important point that I would love your listeners to be aware of. Whenever you see a detransitioner like Chloe Cole go and testify against gender-affirming care, it's very similar to the ex-gays in the in the in the early two thousands, where they would come out and say that being gay was a choice, and that you know they made the wrong choice, and 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 you should ban gay marriage because of that. The reality of the of the situation is that of that one to three percent of people that do detransition, there have been studies done on this population, and only around five percent of the people who do detransition. So remember, it's already a small number, one to three percent, and only five percent of those people do so because they no longer identify as trans. Most of those people who detransition 
do so because their families don't support them anymore. They do so because they're getting fired from their jobs, because they can't afford their hormones. They can't afford their uh, surgery. They cannot obtain the care. And I myself know many detransitioners. And all of the detransitioners that I speak to, they would never advocate against care. And they want the care for themselves. But they can't get it because society's too harsh on them right now. You're going to see a lot of people detransition in Florida in the coming months. And that's not going to be because they no longer identify as trans. It's because Florida bans medical treatment for adults in most circumstances right now. And I think that we need to, we need to keep that in mind, that this narrative that detransitioners are doing so because they, they, aren't, they aren't trans, that is a false narrative. Florida really is the, the most extreme of the states at this point? Yeah. At this point, um, Florida is absolutely the most extreme. We've seen Equality Florida put out a, a travel advisory for the state. We then saw uh, the Human Rights Campaign put out a travel advisory for the state. Uh, it's dangerous for LGBTQ people there, especially trans people there right now. Florida, as, as we were speaking, they have 94,000 transgender people that live in Florida. And about 80% of those people cannot obtain their hormones and they have not been able to obtain their hormones for the last three months. And that's because of a law there that essentially bars nurse practitioners from providing care. And nurse practitioners are the ones who provide the majority of adult gender affirming care. On top of that, it um, requires these informed consent medical misinformation forms that are still being developed. It's a major issue right now in Florida. And then not only are they targeting adult care in Florida, they're also targeting trans people in bathrooms in Florida. So for instance, if I were to go into Florida right now, and I were to use the bathroom that I've always been, that I've been using for the last five years that I feel the most comfortable in, I would be arrested and put in jail for a year. And I think that that is a very scary thought for transgender people in the state and for anybody that has to visit there. I will not travel to Florida because it's, it's too dangerous for me. Yeah, that's just absolutely appalling. Now, there's a Swedish study, um, the anti-trans lobby likes to cite. What's the story of that? You'll often hear in congressional testimony, we heard it in, in the National Anti-Trans Congressional Testimony a couple of weeks ago, that the only study that is high quality that looks at trans people is a Swedish study that says that trans people have, that, that transitioning um, increases our suicide rate. That's usually the claim that's made. And for whatever reason, a lot of Republicans have jumped onto this study. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that the study comes from 2011. It's done by uh, Dr. Jin. And whenever she looked at trans people and what happens after transition, she looked at the years of 1973 to 2003. So this was a historical retrospective. And she found that trans people post-transition have a 19 times higher suicide rate than the general population. However, and she stresses this, and it's very important to note, is that she is not comparing transgender people who can get care to ones who can't get care. She's comparing them to cisgender people who don't have all of the violence, all of the healthcare um, discrepancies that trans people have in that time period. The reality is, is that in that time period from 1973 to 2003, the vast majority of these trans people who were suffering at that time, um, essentially, you know, they, they were often getting HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. They were heavily, trans people have a much higher prevalence of HIV and AIDS, unfortunately. They also have a much higher prevalence of, of uh, homelessness. And this was especially true in the study and in the 1970s and 80s. The other thing that I will note is that prior to 2003, it was almost impossible to medically transition for most trans people. You had to spend about twelve dollars to $20,000 just in therapy visits before they would give you your first hormone, uh, your first hormone therapy. And so in most of these cases, these people could not transition. And therefore, the rates were rather high for, for this population. Modern studies, of which we have about 50 of them at this point, show that gender-affirming care reduces suicidality by about 73%. And that's important to note. Yeah, 2003. I mean, that's a, that was a long time ago. And then the early part of the study is even further ago. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, it, was, it was a very harsh time period. The 1970s and 80s were extremely harsh for LGBT people at large. The, our death rates were very high back then. And for trans people, they were even higher. And I think that the point of her study, and she's already condemned the misinterpretations of her study, the point of her study was to show how harsh those health disparities were. TERFs. And I mean the feminist part. I'm not just talking about trans haters in general. Um, but 
I can understand in some sense where the uh, people are coming at it from a religious point of view. They think this is, you know, you're crossing God's law. But how do you understand TERFs? What motivates that? It's not a giant constituency, but it's somewhat important. Um, how do you understand what, what drives them to this uh, point of hatred? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I've you know I've watched the trans exclusionary radfin movement for for a few years now, and it's primarily an export out of the United Kingdom. It does not have a lot of roots in in American history. You know, there's a lot of thought behind why it developed in the UK and what the differences are here. Uh, American feminism has not sort of embraced anti trans radicalism uh, the way that turfs have in the United Kingdom. In the United States, a lot of the opposition to feminism at large has been from a religious perspective. And so I think that in the United States, uh, the anti-abortion movement is so closely tied in with the anti-trans movement. Indeed, the very same people are pushing both that I think feminists in the United States very clearly see the those tie-ins and they see that the threat posed to one group poses a threat to the other group. In the United Kingdom, that did not ever develop. That religious sort of anti-abortion movement did not ever develop the way that it did in the United States. And therefore, it was easier to sort of cleave off a portion of the feminist movement in the United Kingdom. Now, I will say that those tie-ins are starting to develop. We're seeing in the UK more pushes to ban abortion and we're seeing those same pushes come from the anti-trans forces in the United Kingdom. And I think that at large, people are realizing that the trans-exclusionary movement in the UK is not congruent with the goals of feminism at large. Attitudes towards gay people softened as more straight people got to know more gay people, you know, their cousins, uh, their kids. Um, do, do you foresee something similar happening, uh, happening with uh, attitude towards trans people? Absolutely. And I think that like, you know, I think that we're even starting to see that in many cases. These laws are are being pushed, but they're being pushed contrary to sort of public opinion on trans people at large. And and I think that we are seeing more acceptance now than ever. I'll, I'll also say that we are seeing more acceptance, especially among youth, among Gen Z and among millennials. These two cohorts, these two generations uh, generally tend to poll extremely high on LGBTQ acceptance and transgender acceptance. And in fact, the majority of Gen Z and millennials know somebody personally. So they're either friends or family with somebody who is transgender. And that's not the case for some of the older cohorts. And and I think that will change, that that's going to change over time as more of us come out. And, and in, in some ways, I think that this radical push using laws to target us are a reaction to that change. They're a reaction to the fact that trans people are coming out in large right now, and and we are starting to see increased acceptance. There is Erin Reed, who files near daily reports in the world of trans and queer politics on her Substack. You can find it by googling its name, Erin in the Morning. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this new for Metric, just the once, a pre-release from their forthcoming album Formentera Two. All I know about the album title is that Formentera is an island off the southern coast of Spain. Every time I enjoy a metric song, I worry I'm going soft, but I'm trying to learn acceptance. Till next week, bye.